And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Amen. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you, and as we open up your word, we need you this very hour. Lord, enlighten our minds to hear uh, your truth, to be able to submit to your words. And Father, give us hearts that desire Christ and that run to Christ as our only hope in life and death. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. At the last minute, I text Roland yesterday, and he had the song called He Is No Fool picked out, and I said, after studying the text, and I asked the last minute, I said, I know you know this song, I know you've sung it before, would you do that? Uh, because ultimately, we and Mark come now to a turning point where Jesus is beginning to, he leaves the, um, the Jewish areas and battling with the Jews and their leaders and the uh, Pharisees who are trying to be biblical, and he now in their zeal, they have missed the understanding of the heart of holiness. And now they have, he has gone, and he's gone out to the Gentile areas where he will now minister to his disciples, but also he will come head on uh, with those in need. And we are presented now with a picture of what faith genuinely is. So immediately in verse 24, I want you to notice that this uh, turnabout in this setting that happens where Jesus leaves, and it says, verse 24, He arose and went away from the, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet Jesus could not be hidden. He steals away with his disciples to be able to get some temporary relief from the unrelenting constant demands of the crowds and all the mounting pressure that is being put on him from his opponents, from the Pharisees, in hope of finding much-needed rest. But, as we have seen before, when he has done this, he has been unable. And so for some of you, you don't know where Titus Sidon is, and I had to find it as well. And you have Jesus. Most of his ministry was here around the Sea of Galilee. But if you'll notice, about 30 to 40 miles northwest of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, he enters into Tyre and Sidon. And as you see, this green part is where the Jews are living. And Jesus leaves that area to the place where there is a great concentration of Greek-speaking Gentiles. These two cities were wealthy, wealthy cities. And they were occupied by 
uh, non-Jews. And the, to the point where first cent, uh, century historian Josephus called the people of Tyre and Sidon our most bitter enemies. And what would happen is the people hated the pagans that lived in this area because they were notorious for their paganism and the idol worshiping. And they detested these unclean idol worshipers and they called them filthy dogs because of their pagan, adulterated, idol worshiping lifestyles. These were unclean people living in an unclean land uh, with unclean gods, yet the grace of God went there and found genuine, lasting faith among these people. And Mark's irony now, as we look at the big picture of Mark, he is just, Jesus has just dismantled the holiness of the most biblical Jews out there, the Pharisees who just wanted to be biblical but completely missed the heart of God. And now he's going into this unclean area and Mark is about to push forward a picture of faith that we as our readers are unexpected, but as first century Jews would be aghast as they read this, you're not telling me that genuine faith and genuine holiness is to be found among those people. I can imagine sometimes in our minds, in our 21st century world, we have um, an idea, though maybe more politically correct, of who those people are. Think of those people in your mind. Maybe the people that really get you upset. Who are the people in your life that really cause your emotions to overflow and you get excited when you're talking about them and you refer to them as those people? Maybe it's a different ethnicity. Maybe it's a, a different political party. Maybe it's different that have different lifestyles and different socioeconomic and a different money factor and a different education, and you refer to them as those people. God would never save those people. Question is, how do you stand before God? What is genuine faith? And is genuine faith in your heart? Because the Pharisees had a lot of those people. And they wanted to be faithful. And Jesus says, you're not. Your heart is not right. And so what I want to present to you this morning as we look at this is to be able to see a heart that loves and delights in the Lord. And the question I want to answer is, in what kind of heart does the Lord delight and I present this to you, my big idea. The Lord delights in humble hearts who seek God's grace in Christ. The Lord delights in humble hearts who seek God's grace in Christ. And then we ask the question, well, how does that happen? How do we seek God's grace in Christ? One, to go to Christ, or as this is where I got this, run to Jesus. And I said, oh, Roland, you got to sing this. you got to help me out, brother. Go to Christ with a desperate faith. Two, cling to Christ with a persistent faith. And finally, trust Christ with a believing faith. Go to Christ with a desperate faith. Cling to Christ with a persistent faith. And trust in Christ with a believing faith. So we turn our attention to the first point. Don't worry, those of you taking copious notes, they'll be back up there. But we go to Christ 
with a desperate faith. And we see this in verse 25 and verse 26. But immediately, uh, Jesus is entire. He can't be hidden. Uh, tries to you know, get some retreat, but of course, his celebrity status, if you will, they, word gets out quick. Uh, a, me, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, Mark fills in a little of the background. It says, now the woman was a Gentile. And Mark's readers in the first century would be like, oh, she's one of those people. A Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Mark all of a sudden pushes on the forefront of the narrative of a desperate woman with a desperate need. Her little daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, demon's possession, uh, it, we see through the book of Mark, was a hateful condition because the demons paid no regard to their host. They came and they stole and they killed and they destroyed. We've already seen in Mark chapter 5 the, um, the legion with the hundreds of demons that were inside him, but you see how his life was torn apart. And it says the demon-possessed man had often been bound with shackles and chain, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles and pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. The supernatural strength that was there. But night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. His life was miserable because of the legion of demons possessing his body. Then you see, we'll see in a, a few weeks, months, whatever it might be, in Mark chapter 9, talking about a man came to Jesus and brought his son, and he said, the spirit, this unclean spirit that also was a, uh, possessing this little girl has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. The demons don't care. They don't want to destroy and corrupt and taint all the good and beautiful and true things that God has made in this beautiful world that reflects his majesty. And the demons come in to destroy and kill and steal. And the father in desperation, like our mother here, says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Demon possession was destroying this little girl. And all of us who are parents probably can understand the agony of this mother, mother who watched with, as her helpless little girl was tormented by this unclean spirit who had taken control of her life. Scripture doesn't tell us the backstory. None of the Gospels go into great detail about this, uh, this child's life, but I don't think it's far-fetched to think that this mother would have done anything and gone to great lengths to take care of her little girl going to doctors, going to religious leaders, doing endless rituals and superstitions, anything to be able to help her little girl. But nothing worked. Until the day that Jesus came to town. Grace pursued this woman. Word of the Jewish miracle worker's presence found her. We don't know how, whether it be through a merchant or a townspeople or a, a sympathetic neighbor. We all know, only know that Jesus' presence couldn't be hidden and word got quick. And because we know that news travels fast in a small town, 
She knew that she had to travel fast, so she said, where is he? And she left, and she left her little girl back home in bed, and she went straight to Jesus. And then we can see when she finally found Jesus, in the end of verse 26, notice what she did. She begged Jesus, cast out the demon out of her daughter. Parents, can you feel the desperation in that sentence? Can you feel the pain of the mother? Some of you know that pain. If your child of any age has gone through sickness or uh, mental illness or heartbreak, where your heart breaks for your baby, and you cry out to the Lord, help my baby girl, help my baby boy. There's nothing that I can do. I need you. You cry out to God in desperate anguish because you know that you can do nothing and there's no answer that you can find and there's no place that you can turn to find relief for the one that you love. And this desperate nut mother knew that only at this point Jesus could help her. So what did she do? She went immediately to Jesus. Ocean Barker, there are probably many of you in this room that are similar situation to this mother that are struggling with despair. You're desperate in your life. Maybe it's health. The doctors have no answers for your pain and for your condition, and you're struggling. It may be mental illness where the darkness is overwhelming you and you wander aimlessly through the mist and you worry and you pray. Maybe it be financial issues. You can't make ends meet. In fact, you don't even know where the ends are to try to make them meet. And it may be just simply that your relationships in your life that you are most dear have been torn apart. Words that you have said, words that you can't take back, words that you should have said that went unsaid. Maybe it's just uh, things that have happened and you are estranged from the ones that you love. Whatever it is this morning that, that, where, that you know that you do not know and you do not have the power to fix, to find answers, and you know your weakness, the promise of Jesus is this that is revealed in the gospel. He says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no power on earth nor scheme of man that can stand before Jesus Christ, the anointed Son of God who is revealed in the book of Mark. He is the answer to your heart's pain. The woman knew it, and she went to Jesus. In Ocean Park, you need to know it well. Go to Christ with desperate faith. Not only do you do that, but you, um, because, go to Christ with desperate faith because the Lord delights in humble hearts who seek God's grace in Christ. You go to Christ with a desperate faith, but you also cling to Christ with a persistent faith. This desperate woman came to Jesus like the men earlier in the book of Mark who brought their paralytic friend and they 
couldn't get through the crowd. They couldn't get in the front door. So what did they do? They went to the roof and dug a hole and lowered their friend to Jesus because Jesus was the only answer. Like the uh, woman who was bleeding, who forced her way through the crowd relentlessly. Why? Because she knew that if she touched the garment of Jesus, she would be made whole. Later on, we will see the, the, uh, the parable of the widow who screamed relentlessly day and night in the courtroom of the wicked judge because she was being uh, dealt injustice and she found justice. Just like those who know their desperation and know the only answer to their desperation is Christ, this mother would not be put off. She shows a tenacious determination to get help for her little girl. But there's only one problem. She is not worthy because she is an unclean Gentile. Notice in the beginning of verse 26, now the woman, and this is the kind of thing where Mark or any author of literature throws this in. These are red flags that the author is saying, look, this is important. Look at me, pay attention. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and her daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit. If you could say this is the triple threat of uncleanliness, a Gentile woman who is de- has a demon possession. No Jew, whether a um, stringent, strident Pharisee or even a regular, ordinary Jew, would go anywhere near her. She was an unclean woman in an unclean land, suffering with an unclean spirit. Everything in her, though, knew it, that she was not worthy. She had, no claim, she had no claim to get the favor of Jesus like Jairus did, who uh, was running the synagogue. She couldn't claim any religious credentials like the, like the strident Pharisees. She had no even ethnic ties like the woman what, that was bleeding. She was completely, she had nothing to go to Jesus, but she knew one thing, Jesus was the answer to her problem despite her unworthiness mark doesn't tell us what she says when she gets there he just simply says that she begged jesus but matthew chapter 15 the parallel account tells us and it says behold a canaanite woman a pagan woman from that region greek hellenized region came and was crying have mercy on me i don't deserve your goodness I don't deserve your grace. Have mercy on me. My daughter is oppressed by a demon. The stage, for you people who appreciate literature, it's perfectly set. This desperate woman comes, and you can see this movie as it, 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 it... pans the wide screen of the crowd and now it begins to move on this move on this woman with dramatic mu- uh, music as she forces her way through with tears filling her eyes and you see quick pictures of her daughter and her playing and then her daughter is getting sick and ravaged by this demon and then she gets closer and closer to Jesus and the move the music gets more intense and then she comes to Jesus and she falls down at his feet the stage is perfectly set for him to uh, to reach out and say be healed but that's not what happens at all what happens Notice verse 27. 
And Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the child's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm a connoisseur of children's Bibles and storybooks. I love to see them. A lot of them are just terrible. Um, A lot of them are really good. And I have lots, I've loaded the library up with good ones. I've watched many adaptations of children's cartoons about the life of Jesus from Veggie Tales to whatever. I don't believe I've ever seen this interaction in any of them. And why is that? Because Jesus' words are utterly offensive to a 21st century mind. A desperate mother comes to Jesus because her little girl is being destroyed by a demon, and rather than being welcomed with opened arms and granted a miracle healing, she's abruptly dismissed with a pejorative insult. What do we make of such words? Because if if Jesus, if this was a Twitter, Twitter uh, uh, rea- interaction between this woman and Jesus, Twitter would have shut Jesus' uh, account down. I, I really do. When we first hear these words, these words are offensive. They're sexist. They're racist. Is this really what Jesus intended? And I don't think so. I don't think so because it would be completely contrary to the heart of what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 7. What Mark is portraying the heart of the, of, of the Lord and what genuine disciples are who follow Jesus with ge- just, uh, genuine faith. Jesus has gone out of his way to demonstrate that a person standing before God is not because of the externals, because of the internals. And then this happens with the woman. And I've read a lot about it this week, and I've scratched my head, and I was like, maybe Scott can preach for me this week. He can preach this text, and I'll pick up like a really, like a parable of something that everybody would be happy. I would love to have dodged this text this week, but I can't, because all Scripture is inspired by God. Jesus' words will be the final straw that shatters the religious paradigm of the Jews and for all the readers of Mark. And he does it by speaking a parable to this woman. The parable of the children and the house pets. Now in these words that Jesus said, let the children be fed first, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children are the Jews. The food is God's spiritual provision to his household and the dogs, and it's actually, in the original language, a diminutive. It's not the nasty, disgusting scavengers that, uh, of dogs, because they didn't have like really happy dogs that we have a dog at our house, and you all do too. Um, you know, you're thinking of Rex or T-Bone or whatever. Um, but what happens is they, dogs were scavengers who ate the carrion, the roadkill and dead bodies, and they were disgusting uh, disease-ridden mongrels. And this is the, the insult that the Jews put towards the Gentiles. Jesus actually uses it, uh, and, and probably he uses the diminutive word more like puppies. Puppies. Now, you might be thinking, in my mind, and I thought it this week, of uh, when uh, the kids were little, we had a Great Dane who was not a puppy. Even when she wasn't a puppy, she was quite large. Uh, and then we think of Frodo now, who sits quietly, not all the time, at Crosby's feet, waiting for Crosby to go like this and drop things down to him. Uh, and Denise tries to, to, to shoo the, child, the, the dog out, not the child, the dog. Um, <laughs> 
sometimes the kid too. Um, but with, as Jesus says this, the issue is not the woman's worth, but whether or not Jesus was sent primarily to the Jews or to the, as the Gentiles caused the dogs. Or I'm sorry, as the Jews called the Gentiles the dogs. And Jesus uses it and says to, as you could say, the puppies. Matthew records this interaction when she asks him to heal his daughter. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah, uh, as a fulfillment of the promises given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He came as a Jew to save the Jews. It's the very thing. I believe, uh, um, for I am not ashamed of the power of God, for it is the power of salvation. Well, how does it finish? To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And I was always like, well, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to memorize it for Awana. But Jesus here is the same thing that Paul was talking about, is that Jesus came first to restore the tribes of the Jews, to bring the gospel, to fulfill these promises that were given to the prophets, then he would send his disciples into all the world to get the nations and people that are not defined by ethnicity or income, but a people defined by hearts that have purified and cleansed by Jesus. And like he told his mother when she said, help them out at the wedding, my hour has not yet come. There is an essence he is now telling this woman, the time has not yet come for the Gentiles. He uses this parable to say that his, he has come first, and in, in the words, first to feed the children, the Jews. And a time has not yet come, but will come, where he will bring the good news of the gospel to the nations or to those who the Jews called unclean Gentile dogs. And it was a twist. Wasn't expecting that. Then notice verse 28. This is where the paradigms of the Jew, or the first century reader, would have been like, what? But she answered him, yes, Lord. That's true. You're fulfilling the, pro pro uh, the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're fulfilling the promises given to David. You're fulfilling the pr promises that were given by Isaiah and Jeremiah. But even the dogs, the puppies, under the table, eat the children's crumbs. This woman's response was remarkable because we know in the book of Mark, they didn't get it. How many times do you read, Jesus gives this parable, and the disciples was like, hey, Jesus, about that parable, I have no idea what it means. Can you tell us? Over and over and over in the book of Mark, the Pharisees don't get it, and the disciples don't get it. They're like, I have no idea. You ask them. Um, but what happens? She gets it immediately she gets it. And some of you ladies are like, yeah, of course she is. She's a woman. She gets it. You guys are dolts. But she gets it. And who gets it? Not a Jewish woman, but a Gentile woman. She understands it. She understands who Jesus is and this place that he has. She doesn't scoff at Jesus's harsh words. She doesn't block him on Twitter. She doesn't prove he's wrong. She doesn't let, well, let me tell you what I have done. His accomplishments is worthy of it. She knows two things, and she understands two things, that she was not the child in the, in, the, in the parable, but she's the puppy, the little dog in the household. She knows that, but she also knows that she needs Jesus. 
In other words, she knew that she didn't have any merit to deserve Jesus' mercy. She was the wrong ethnicity. She was the wrong religion. She was in the wrong society. But she knew the only one that could help her little daughter was the goodness of Jesus. And she would not let go. She clung to Jesus. So she says, even the little dogs in the house eat the crumbs that the child drops. She's the only person who gets it thus far. And really, one of the only people in all the book of Mark until the Holy Spirit illuminates the mind of the disciples. They're like, oh, that's what was going on. She understands Jesus, and then she, in that understanding, turns her request because of what Christ reveals. She turns it back and she says, even though the master doesn't snatch the food off the children's plate and throw it to, the, to them, the, there are little crumbs, little pieces of chicken nuggets and raisins and goldfish that fall down to the dogs, and the dogs are able to happily scarf it up, and they're fed and they're satisfied. Please allow a little dog to eat a morsel or two. You are who I need. Faith of this woman doesn't ask for catered, full-course meals. She knows she just needs a little crumb from the power of Jesus to feed a little dog in his house. Her understanding is incredible, but most important, her faith is enormous. Like in the Old Testament when Jacob wrestled with God and said, I will not let go with you until you bless me. This woman saw her need, knew her desperation, and she flung flung herself at Jesus and clung and said, I will not let go because I know that I need you. This woman is the model of faith that Mark presents to us. Not the Pharisees who did all the right things and said all the right words, but as we see in Mark verse 6, their hearts were distant from God. She had a humble heart, not trying to lift herself up like the Pharisees. Oh God, thank you for not making me like those people. But she humbled herself at the feet of Jesus, knowing that she was unclean and unworthy. She came to Jesus to be saved, and she would not be deterred. She not, doesn't become bitter about the privileges of the other. She doesn't resent the Jews because uh, 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 Jews share of God's blessing. She doesn't bow up at Jesus immediately what he asked her to do. He, she recognized that she has no right to claim God's mercy, but she has come to Jesus anyway as a sinner, poor, and needy. Her faith is the standard of a humble heart that comes to Jesus. An unclean woman living in an unclean land, oppressed by an unclean spirit, and she comes to Jesus to be cleansed and to be made whole. Ocean Park, we are like this woman. None of us deserve the today the mercy of God or the grace of God. None of us are worthy of God's grace Our hearts are that festering cesspool when it's stirred right, all sorts of evil can come out. But we come to Jesus because we know He can make us clean. And His grace is amazing to save, not a pretty good guy like me, to save a wretch like me. You and I are like this woman. 
We have unclean hearts that bring forth all sorts of sins. We have no claim, no privilege, no right to ask Jesus anything, but we know he is our only hope. And like this woman, we must humble ourselves and seek God's mercy in Christ at all costs. Genuine faith does not scoff when Jesus says our hearts are defiled by sin, when Scripture says that we're sinners, because we are. Genuine faith does not attempt to prove our worth. Well, I might be a sinner, but I can outdo and be more churchy and give more money and charity and do all that stuff than that guy down the street. Genuine faith does not say to Jesus, you owe me. You're supposed to bless me. And if you don't bless me, you're not good. I could never worship a God like that. Genuine faith in Christ does not say, neither, I am too far from the grace of God to be saved. Genuine faith accepts Jesus' declaration and humbly bows as a beggar seeking mercy and grace. We sing this all the time. Nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The great evangelist D.L. Moody said this, Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. Ocean Park, what will you do? Will you walk away and thumb your nose at Jesus and tell him where to go, saying, I'm no sinner, I'm strong, I'm not weak. I will do it like uh, Sinatra. I'll do it my way. I will not bow the knee. Can't believe that they would, that he'd expect me to do that. Or will you empty yourself of foolish pride and cling to Christ with persistent um, faith, knowing that the Lord delights in humble hearts who seek God's grace in Christ? Ocean Park, we need to go to Christ with desperate faith, cling to Christ with a persistent faith, and trust Christ with a believing faith. Notice in the final verses as we wrap up in verse 29, And Jesus said to her, For this statement you may go your way, The demon has left your daughter. She didn't. Jesus looks at this woman and he commended her for humility. He commended her for her faith. He delighted in this humble heart with great faith in him. And she heard the words of her desperate hearts longing for Jesus say, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. There were no religious rituals that he was needed, no ceremonial washing, no act of faith to be performed to perfection, just a word from Jesus. And the little girl was made whole, freed from the oppression of the demon. One word from Jesus who has authority over life and death, angels and demons, heaven and hell, powers and authorities. One simple word, and her daughter was healed. This great woman's faith trusted Christ and took him at his word. And verse, notice verse 30. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Can you imagine what that felt like. 
Some of you moms know what that felt like a little bit, not that your children are possessed by demons. Sometimes I wonder on Wednesday nights. But um, you go, in that moment the fever breaks, and that feeling that you feel, the moment that you get the good news, about uh, the health issue that you, that you had lost nights of sleep worrying about your baby. You say, give it to me, Lord. Don't give it to them. Those moments where the Lord has provided. Her faith in Christ had become sight. Christ had delivered her little girl from the hateful clutches of the demon. God's grace is great and his mercy is wide for all who humble themselves before Christ. Now as I speak these words, I realize that sometimes that Jesus doesn't answer those. When you pray for your little girl, your little boy, or for your mom or your dad, or for your spouse, or for yourself, the Lord doesn't always answer those questions. But that doesn't mean that the Lord is not your answer, Lord Jesus, because he has defeated your greatest enemy, far greater than demon possession could ever did, the the enemy which is sin and death. But sometimes we get distracted and we think lesser things are our greatest enemies. I'm reading a book by Johnny Erickson Tata, who in the preface says, I, Johnny Erickson, let me tell you this, Johnny Erickson Tata was in a wheelchair for, has been in a wheelchair for 50 years when she was a teenager. She had a diving accident. She's a quadriplegic. Uh, and she says at one point, I don't even remember what it's like to be able to walk. But as she's writing these words I'm about to show you, she's in the midst of probably says it was far worse than being a paraplegic, is the intense pain in her body at all times to the point where um, she wakes up in the middle of the night weeping because of the pain, but she bites her lips because she doesn't want to wake her husband up early because he is her caregiver. And he comes in and, and flips her every hour. She says, I can't do anything about it. And she is riding this in the midst of pain. And, and sometimes there's going to be times when the Lord doesn't heal our little girls of demon possession. But we go, and he's our greatest need because he has defeated our greatest enemy. We just don't know it. I want to read these words that she wrote. There's nothing like real hardships to strip off the veneer in which you and I so carefully cloak ourselves, that external holiness, that I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, all of this stuff on the outside that doesn't really reach our heart, but our sense of self-righteousness. We think we know what we need. And she continues, says, heartache and physical pain reach below the superficial surface places of our lives, stripping away years of accumulated indifference and neglect. When pain and problems press up against a holy God, suffering can't help but strip away the years of dirt, of doubt, of bad doctrine, of, of believing false lies. Affliction has a way of jackhammering our character. And let me tell you, that doesn't hurt. That, uh, that hurts. Shaking us and loosening our grip on everything we hold tight, the idols of our life that will destroy us. But the beauty of being stripped down to the basic sandblasted until we reach a place where we feel empty and helpless is that God, uh, is that God can fill us with himself. When pride and pettiness have been removed, God can fill us with Christ in you, the hope of glory.
Chris, as you advance me, please. Oh, that was it, I'm sorry. Brothers and sisters, in your life, our greatest enemy is sin and death. We need Jesus, whose life and death conquered our enemies. Run to Jesus. Go to Christ with a desperate faith. Cling to Christ with a persistent faith. And trust Christ with a believing, uh, a believing faith. Because the Lord delights in humble hearts who seek God's grace in Christ. Like this woman who said, I am desperate, I am unworthy, but I know I need Jesus. May that be our declaration the first time and every day where we raise, I need you, Jesus. And we take God at his word, knowing there will be a day when our faith is made sight and we see Jesus and the shackles of sin and death are let, for, are let loose and we dwell in glory.